Welcome to this special episode of the Dialogue Journal podcast. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today, we're featuring an episode of the podcast Latter-day Struggles, one of the amazing shows in the Dialogue podcast network. The podcast is hosted by therapist Valerie Hamaker, and the aim of the show is to help people move from faith crisis to faith expansion. In a recent episode, Valerie invited me on to discuss the history and debates around the Book of Mormon in modern scholarship. The conversation is broken into two parts, and we think you'll really enjoy this brief introduction to the topic. Be sure to subscribe to the Latter-day Struggles podcast and leave them a review. And while you're at it, please take a moment to leave a review for the Dialogue Journal podcast as well. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. And once again, I have Taylor Petrie here with me for another episode where we're going to go deeply into a lot of fantastic, um, very interesting conversation about the Book of Mormon and its historicity or its non-historicity, something in between, maybe. How are you today, Taylor? Very good. Great to be back with you. Yes, it has been so fun. We had a conversation. So if you haven't gone back, if you haven't, if you're just jumping on today, jump back to the episode right before this one, because we, in our last episode, uh, talked a lot about the, the vying sides of this controversial issue of what is this thing, the Book of Mormon? It certainly, whether no matter what you think about the Book of Mormon, my goodness, it has done, it has been very, very influential and it uh, looms large, <laughs> uh, certainly for our church historically, but actually it is one of the more um, well-known books out there worldwide um, historically. It's a big deal. Um, no matter what your feelings about it are there, you can't argue that uh, most people have a, have heard of it or have some opinion about the Book of Mormon. So Taylor, let's get started with talking just very, very briefly about who are the main players of these arguments between, is it historical or is it more uh, a piece of literature from the 19th century? Like, go ahead and just talk about who are the big organizations that are having these conversations that are doing all the writing and, you know, defending um, of, of whatever their particular site is. Yeah. So in the uh, 1960s or so, um, everybody was kind of talking in one place. There was only one place to talk about this stuff, which was dialogue. Uh, but then after that, uh, which is the journal that I'm currently at the editor of, if you missed that in, in the first episode, but after that, we start to see a kind of fragmentation. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, we, you used to see people who all, everybody published in the book of Mormon, everybody published their stuff on the book of Mormon in dialogue, but then we start to see it really kind of break off and, and we get camps forming. And in some cases, these camps are very well funded by donors, uh, in some cases by the church. So we get, um, a kind of uh, a siloing of these conversations. Uh, the big one that that we mentioned already is the foundation of ancient research in Mormon studies. Uh, starts in the early 1980s and goes up until the mid 2000s uh, before it's um, absorbed into Brigham Young University as part of the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. Um, it doesn't really exist so much anymore, but it sort of has lived on in secondary form in two other organizations today. The Interpreter. Uh, an online journal run by Daniel Peterson and Book of Mormon Central. And there are now there's Doctrine and Covenants 
Central, and I think they call themselves Scripture Central, a sort of the overarching uh, organization. And they put out a lot of online videos and and uh, and essays and so on. But it's really kind of that's all that same sort of apologetic approach. It sort of traces itself in in that lineage there. Um, Signature Books starts in the. Uh, I want to say it's in the early 1980s, and it becomes a venue for uh, disaffected Latter-day Saints, ex-Latter-day Saints, and uh, in some cases, scholarly Latter-day Saints who are still affiliated with the church uh, who want to be able to publish more critical scholarship. Uh, and so Signature Books becomes a kind of home for a lot of the uh, those who are arguing for a 19th century context of the Book of Mormon. Uh, of course, you've got ex-Mormon ministries out there and a lot of you know uh, religious uh, opponents of Mormonism who are making these same kinds of arguments, but the scholarly stuff is really sort of happening uh, primarily in signature books. Um, several university presses then kind of get into the game at a, at a later stage, and so today you can read you know amazing scholarship on the Book of Mormon from Oxford University Press and the University of North Carolina uh, uh, Press, and and so on. In fact, uh, there's a book on the Book of Mormon just last year, two years ago, sorry, from the University of North Carolina Press that won a major award in religious studies. Uh, uh, they are called visions uh, in a seer visions of the seer stone or something like that. Uh, really excellent book. Um, so so it's really kind of continued to fragment as as more and more players have have gotten involved. But it sort of fell often into those two major camps. Um, several people over the years have attempted to sort of bridge that divide and to find common ground uh, to sort of uh, you know take take a, a middle position uh, there. Uh, but but those are sort of the the major two the two major camps. And if you're looking for scholarship on this stuff, those are the two places to look, at least of, for the last 30 years. And my understanding of the Dialogue Journal is that they have also tried to sort of be the bridge where they will publish on, on either side just as a way to, of course, engage dialogue, which is so psychologically and spiritually healthy to do, right? That we don't have to always believe the same way, but engaging in conversation is what actually brings about uh, the expansion of truth. Talk, talk, talk us through how... Has dialogue been, um, how have they been instrumental in, or how successful have they been in, in doing that over the years? Yeah, you know, uh, certainly uh, it, it's been the, the major place where people who have attempted to find a bridge have come. It's also been a place where people who are critical have, have published their, their essays. Um, uh, after Farms was started, uh, dialogue sort of uh, became less and less relevant to apologetic conversations because wow. there was a major place out there and they were very well funded. And so and so you see less and less uh, of the apologetic works even being submitted to dialogue. They they would write letters to the editor kind of sort of contending against the latest article that had come out in dialogue and say, that's not true, you know, and mm -hmm. fights back and forth and so on. But uh, but but in a way, they, they sort of often self-segregated the, the sort of apologetic arguments. But um, it's also dialogue became a really important home for those people who are trying to find a kind of middle ground. And this is sort of symbolized, I think, most potently in an article by a guy named Blake Osler, who's writing in the 1980s. He's still around. He's a, a you know, well, well-known uh, scholar and, and is, um, uh, you know, takes apologetic positions on a number of important issues. But he sort of 
made this fascinating argument that said, well, what if we can kind of take the best of both worlds? What if we can say there's all of this genuinely ancient stuff in there and there's all of this genuinely 19th century stuff in there and we can see both of them as being inspired by God. See, Joseph Smith as being the vehicle for divine revelation on, on these things. And we sort of start with the presupposition that, that the text announces itself as being written for our day, mm. right? Uh, and uh, the best way to maybe make sense of that is to say, see Joseph Smith as a sort of conduit for um, uh, sort of reinterpreting the Nephite story in the context that would make sense to and be relevant to 19th century Americans. Um, so, so that explains all of the stuff that that is in the 19th century, but it doesn't deny that Joseph Smith is a prophet. It doesn't deny that there are historical Nephites and real gold plates. And this is sort of this fascinating breakthrough argument and sort of uh, is the core, the foundation that I would say many, many people have today uh, some version of this, including uh, you know very well-known scholars like Terrell Givens more or less takes a position that's similar to this. Uh, a lot of people have come to dispute the specific things that some people say are ancient or the specific things some people say are 19th century. But again, that paradigm, that model uh, became really important for the way that many scholars uh, who are believers and advocates of the Book of Mormon to sort of take that middle position um, as one that can uh, accommodate belief, can accommodate uh, their their faith and support in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith as a prophet, and also acknowledge and recognize these modern uh, anachronisms as anachronisms and not have to, you know, make up some story about what was going on in the sixth century BCE about it. That's really fascinating. How would you say from your own vantage point, how well has that been received at large by the the, the naturalistic world? I'm assuming they probably don't take well to that. Am I wrong? Or are they okay with that? Um, you know, it, it's fascinating because I would say that many religious studies scholars are um, I think more open to that mm. position, non-members, non-members, you know, or mm. sort of more open to a position, not as a historical claim, um, you know, not to say that there really were real Nephites for non, for non-members, but to at least, uh, uh, say like i can understand why that would be a position that that you would mm. take you know um so uh, uh, on the other hand you know um many people again will say well all of the things that you think are ancient are still really just modern you know <laughs> or and, and try mm -hmm. to find those parallels so um you know or finding more and more new anachronisms you know we're we're finding as, as i mentioned uh it turns out first Nephi has actually got a lot of second and third Nephi in it, you know, so we're finding new anachronisms all the time. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so, so I, I would say that people are less hostile to mm -hmm. it. It's, uh, you know, sort of critical, uh, of perspectives and more, um, uh, you know, willing that people to uh, willing that willing, glad that people are willing to engage, uh, and take their arguments seriously as the apologists often didn't and, and spoke to them derisively, you know, so they're like, okay, these hmm. are people we can talk to. I see what you're saying there. It, it in some ways represents a bit of a coming to the middle in that they're acknowledging that there are definitely a lot of 19th century fingerprints all over the place. Yeah. And so it's a yeah. way to sort of hold on to those who really feel strongly that they want to they can't let go of Joseph Smith as a prophet yeah. of the Book of Mormon and the translator, or that he did something powerful and God-ordained through the Book of Mormon, but 
in so doing, there are also, um, there's a lot of man in there, a lot of yeah. humanity, a lot of himself infused through this process in some way, shape or form. Am I getting that right? I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. And, and what it often comes down to and where, where, you know, uh, people have often debated is, is Joseph Smith a fraud? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, if the Book of Mormon is a 19th century text, then Joseph Smith is a fraud. If it's an ancient text, then he's not. And so many people have just been dissatisfied with that binary, you know, uh, yeah. and people want to say, OK, well, there's some ancient and there's some modern. That's one way that we can bridge it. And other, as I say, religious studies scholars, non, non-Mormons who are, are very sympathetic to the story of the Book of Mormon as a sort of religious production, which doesn't get us into sort of the fraudulent territory. You know, so there are a number of a number of non-Mormons. Mormon scholars who again love the Book of Mormon think it's a great you know piece of literature. See it as a 19th century text. You know have have some criticisms maybe of some of the theology and some of the claims in it. You know, but uh, you know, but don't see it as a fraud, right? And, and and can still appreciate it as a text of scripture and so on. So so that's I think it's the the, the territory has gotten a lot more blurry in the last 20 years, where a number of scholars inside and outside the church have uh, sort of come to a uh, a, a detente maybe mm-hmm. around how to approach this, that we're not going to say Joseph Smith is a fraud. It's okay you know, to accept it, but we're still going to uh, be rigorous historians about how we approach mm-hmm. this text as a, as a uh, text that's has 19th century fingerprints at the very least, as, mm-hmm. as you said, right? Um, yes, there are people on either ends of those perspective, the, mm-hmm. the apologists and, and some of the uh, uh, opponents of the Book of Mormon who, you know, don't see room for compromise and agreement. But I think that that space has really kind of grown um, uh, uh, pretty, pretty big in recent years. That's incredibly fascinating. Oh, this is just blowing my mind, Taylor. Let's talk for a second, if we may. You mentioned theology a minute ago. And I think that brings us to a couple of articles that you actually mentioned in the lit review that I'm going to be linking to these show notes uh, that talks about some really interesting things that I did not know about in terms of theology. The first thing that I want to make mention of is that um, one of, I hate to say this, but one of the scholars, and I don't, I didn't write his or her name down, noticed that a lot of current Mormon theology and Book of Mormon theology doesn't necessarily talk to each other, that they're very, very different and that um, their contention in the in the article was that Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon itself wasn't actually a heavily read book contemporary to Joseph Smith's time in the early church. Um, can you speak to that at all? I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. So uh, th- this is an article originally from Grant Underwood oh, and, and, and several, um, he's a historian at BYU and, and several other scholars have sort of followed up on this and nuanced his, his claims. But, but he made a persuasive case that, um, you know, early Mormons really didn't read the Book of Mormon. <laughs> they very rarely quoted it. Um, uh, when you read Joseph Smith's sermons, and so he's, he's riffing on the Bible here, you know, uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, there are only like a handful of times that he mentions, um, you know, anything in the book of Mormon. And the funny, one of the funny ones is that he gets it really wrong once he's like, the book of Mormon says this. And it's like, no, the book of Mormon does not say this. It's like, Joseph Smith, you just seem to have not read the book that you translated here. Um, so, so a lot of people notice that. And then, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, Latter-day Saint thought and Latter-day Saint theology in the post-Book of Mormon era really kind of goes in in sometimes very quite different directions. 
obviously like temple theology, uh, the three kingdoms, uh, the three degrees of glory. None of that is in the Book of Mormon. There's a very binary heaven and hell, a kind of old cl classical model there. Um, so there are a number of places where Book of Mormon theology and Latter-day Saint thought don't necessarily line up. Um, and that's been a you know one one point of of scholarship to say okay well this represents an early Joseph Smith or this represents an ancient world you know where these things and and this is modern revelation that we're getting these new ideas here right so we, we wouldn't expect them to be to show up in in these in in the ancient context necessarily uh, but but yes absolutely I think that, that you, you sort of put your finger on a, a long standing issue in Book of Mormon scholarship is. Mm -hmm. It turns out, actually, Latter-day Saints don't believe in a lot of the theology. <laughs> oh, so the interesting. Of Something else that I want to quote here from this author you mentioned, I think, in last episode, Clyde, Clive Ford wrote um, a journal article called Lehi on the Great Issues, Book of Mormon Theology on the, and the Early 19th Century Perspective, where he traces that you can actually look at what is talked about in the Book of Mormon in the... Um, theology of the Book of Mormon itself. And you can find Methodism, Calvinism, Arminianism. Arminianism can you say that right for me? Arminianism. That's the one. Yes. Uh, universalism and many other sort of conglomerates in that Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon or however you want to, um, whatever the origin story is, it's really, um, it's a conglomeration of a lot of theological rivalries of Joseph Smith's time period. And it's sort of eclectic. And I find that very fascinating because in some ways you think about how, um, once again, this is um, a naturalistic approach, but one that also as Latter-day Saint theology has evolved, um, we arguably are, a, I mean, I don't know that we couldn't be, right? Every church and every tradition is nested in larger culture, which is, is an expansion of all sorts of other things that are expansions of other things, right? And so in some ways... Um, are we unique to Catholicism, Protestantism? I mean, we're all, it's all very much interwoven with itself. Um, I just thought that was very interesting that, that Joseph Smith's um, time period can be read through the Book of Mormon. Can you speak into that at all? Or have I made a big mess of that? No, no, I, I think that's right. So people who analyze, especially the sermons in the Book of Mormon, sort of uh, look at what are the theological topics here. It's it's agency, it's salvation, it's infant mm -hmm. baptism. You know, these were the things that that early nineteenth century Americans were fighting about. Uh, what you know, different churches were splitting over, and there were sort of major divisions. And the Book of Mormon seems to speak to all of those topics, right? As opposed to maybe what you know ancient Hebrews are talking about at that time. They're not talking about infant baptism there's no text about infant baptism in you know the or, or so uh so how do we make sense of that right and and you know uh this is again one of those anachronisms that we have all of this sort of modern theology um and as we've also mentioned the book of Mormon sort of announces itself it's like we're written to the the day in which this comes and the, you know mm -hmm. there's actually a famous quote that brigham young gives it's often quoted in these contexts where he says if the book of Mormon were translated today it would be very different mm. what does he mean uh, and this sort of blows your mind it's like what does he mean by that well he seems to accept this idea too that the book of mormon is speaking to the time period in which it was translated uh and that you know 
60 years later or 30 or 40 years later, I guess, whenever he gives that quote, probably in the 1860s, uh, you know, he he acknowledges that the times would have changed and that it would maybe have a different perspective on things depending on who's translating and so on. So, so there's actually kind of a, a long tradition in the church of sort mm-hmm. of acknowledging the contingency of the Book of Mormon as a text uh, uh, that represents the time period in which it comes from. And uh, and that that article that you mentioned is kind of a good overview of some of the major theological debates uh, that show up in the Book of Mormon and how they're related to the historical context of the late of the early 19th century. So what I think I'm picking up on from what you're teaching me right now, Taylor, is that where things have moved in sort of more modern times in the last couple of decades or so is sort of this um, this more complex understanding of maybe a little bit of a consilience that maybe, maybe there is some revelatory something going on interspersed with some of a man um, who is also interpreting or interjecting, or there's something going on there that is very 19th century. And maybe it's also um, interwoven with some revelation that um, may or may not be, this is where I'm asking a question, Um, is in, in that sort of frame of reference are they believing that there are ancient Nephites and Lamanites, or is this more like a biblical kind of thing where we're looking back at Old Testament and saying, these are incredibly beautiful myths, but, you know, did Adam and Eve actually live in a garden? Or is this, um, are there, you know, we, we know that there are multiple kinds of myths that come from multiple different traditions that make this an incredibly beautiful way to understand ourselves. But did those two people actually live? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Let me certainly, yeah, yeah hopefully that yeah. the book. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I would say that obviously among non-Latter-day Saints who appreciate the Book of Mormon, you know, the, the historical claims of the Book of Mormon are not taken, out, taken out seriously the in, any, mm-hmm. in, in any way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there are several Latter-day, uh, several non-Latter-day Saints who, who write books, you know, every couple of years, somebody writes that says how much they love it or write an article and says such a great book of world scripture. Um, and so, uh, so, so appreciating it as scripture, but that's a separate perspective than, you know, a sort of historical claim among active Latter-day Saints. I think that you would find among, among scholars, a, a whole range of, uh, responses to this. Of course, many who, who accept the necessity of a historicity of the text as it being, uh, a, a sort of a central or essential to, uh, Joseph Smith's claims and to Joseph Smith's uh, prophetic calling and others who are fine to kind of accept it completely as a 19th century revelation. This is sometimes called the catalyst theory, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that Joseph Smith responding to some uh, a real or perceived uh, uh, event or object in his life that he called the gold plate sort of has this book, the Book of Mormon as a revelation, which is no no matter what you think of it, it is a pretty remarkable yeah. uh, feat for to, to do this in 60 some days, you know, and to tell yes. this coherent and complex narrative. And, and uh, you know, so, so um, you know, we, you, that needs to be explained somehow, right? And uh, so I think that many believing Latter-day Saints who don't accept the historicity of the Book of Mormon still see it as a as a revelatory event and as a sort of uh, divine, you know, divinely inspired, divine intervention in, in some ways that allows them to appreciate the Book of Mormon, accept it as scripture, 
but not have to, uh, you know, land on, well, where did the Nephites, you know, end up and who are the Lamanites and where does DNA fall and, and, and all of these kinds of things. And, and this parallels, you know, you, you made a, you made an example of the Bible and, and sort of literal interpretations versus figurative interpretations. These are debates that Protestants and Catholics have been having about the Bible for the last 200 years right. when people started to say the Bible isn't historical. <laughs> and right. yeah, this a is lot of the stuff argument. that's there, you know, <laughs> and, and Latter-day Saints are sort of coming around to dealing with these questions in some respects, not only for the Book of Mormon, but also for the Bible. Yeah. Uh, Latter-day Saints often, often kind of accepted very traditional and, and conservative um, uh, interpretations of the Bible that um, modern Christians did not and, and were willing to accept more nuanced and more uh, figurative uh, understandings of scripture that didn't rest on was there actually an ark that, you know, was right. there actually a flood and did all the dinosaurs die then or or what, you know, like all, all the kind of weird things that sort of fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible back, back people into the, trying to reconcile those things. And so I think that we're still at early days days in some respects, though it's been decades that Latter-day Saints have been kind of wrestling with the historicity of the Book of Mormon. But but I, I'll also acknowledge that not very many people are kind of willing to take that argument in print. It alienates mm. a lot of Latter-day Saints, you know? Right. Uh, so more the position that we see is that is, again, probably more along the lines of that middle position of it's okay to accept that some of the Book of Mormon is anachronistic, but there still is a core historical claim. Uh, is probably where most public Latter-day Saints will will land. Yeah. Okay, let's let's. I know it's time for us to close up. I um, do you have a just sorry, a I've been talking for no. way too long. Sorry, <laughs> you have not been talking for way too. I actually have more time. I just don't, I want to honor your time. Do you have a few more minutes to to have another just sure. part of our conversation? Okay, sure. this is um this is going to be the. I think I'm going to ask you a hard question, and I'm happy to dialogue with you on this. Um, but I'm thinking about the people that come to uh, me as um, a consultant in my groups um, who are many of the population that listened to listen to this podcast are people of great faith and have been um, many of whom are are multiple generation members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and have in some way shape or form come come a, been awakened to some discrepancies in their the way the church and the way history, um, has been rendered to them. And so they're making sense of these very, very challenging topics. And interestingly, while I have no agenda that they stay or that they go as a, psych as a psychologist and a therapist, I just want them to be healthy and I want them to be whole. And I want them to be in close relationship with a higher power, however that needs to go. Um, and, but interestingly, a lot of them want to stick around. They want to be in relationship with the church. Many want to stay active. Some at least want to stay, um, be be in a place where they can be comfortable around the church because there's no getting away from it for many of them. It's part of their heritage, their family, their marriage, their Christmas Eve, you know, things like that. So the big question that I want to ask you is this. Let's just suppose for a moment that we're able to hold the tension of a book of scripture that has revelatory value to it. And it's scripture not because it's it was translated word for word through the Urim and Thummim or in the seer stones and every single word. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about perhaps um, for those of us who are trying to hold this idea that it is it is true, but in a different way, because it has in fact brought us closer to Jesus Christ through our study of it 
through our lives. Okay. So we have that, that whole side of it. And then we have to manage the, the complex side of all of these fairly compelling arguments on the side of the naturalists that in some ways do a fairly decent job of proving that this is not exactly as we thought it was. Okay. So this is where the grief comes up. This is where people have to struggle with how to reconcile. And the question I have for you, Taylor, is um, as people reconcile this, I think it um, points a finger at, at Joseph Smith. If, if it was as complicated as it was, why, why, why couldn't we just know that from the very beginning? And why was it sold to us in a way that led us to believe it was something far simpler than maybe it was? Take that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, first, I applaud people who are wrestling with these questions. These are the kind of mature questions that uh, that, that uh, in many ways, most adults probably should be dealing with in their faith and in their lives and thinking through these issues. Amen. Um, and, uh, and also to, to acknowledge and to recognize, I, I know it can often feel very lonely for people who are, who are encountering these experiences, who feel alienated from, from the church and who feel alienated from others that to, to know that people have been asking and thinking these same questions for decades and, and in some cases a century plus, <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and that there are, are serious people who think about these things and come to sometimes different conclusions about it as well. Uh, you don't need to be a scholar and, and you know read forty books to to kind of you know figure out how you think about all of these things to to at least acknowledge that um, you know there is a, a history of people who have you know laid the groundwork for how to approach some of these issues, and it's worth kind of looking around and seeing uh, some some of the different options that are out there, right? Um, and uh, so so I'll get uh, sort of maybe two two part answer to your question. One is like, how can we think about the Book of Mormon and maybe more sophisticated ways? And, and to note that there are probably two paths um, that that uh, have, have retained a lot of sway in a kind of um, post-historical Book of Mormon uh, uh, model here. Uh, and that's not to say non-historical, but a kind of like, let's get past reading the Book of Mormon as history. Um, one is to say that uh, reading scripture as history is simply to mistake genres. You know, yes. scripture is not history. History is history, right? <laughs> we read scripture for a totally different reason. We read scripture to get revelation. We read scripture to get closer to, to God. We read scripture to, uh, uh, to understand God's uh, intervention in the world. Not necessarily as a like this is a historically true thing, but uh, but again as a kind of model of inspiration for thinking theologically, for thinking mm -hmm. uh, you know in, in uh, about the presence and role of God and Spirit in, in our lives, and this is a model that sort of comes out of um, again sort of Protestant and Catholic responses to challenges to the historical Bible, but it's actually the way that people read the Bible before historical challenges to the Bible. Nobody right. was reading the Bible, you know, in the middle, in the middle Eve, medieval period, they weren't looking for like historical parallels. They were looking for like, what does this theologically tell us? So there's a huge school of, uh, of thought that kind of thinks about the text as a theological issue. Uh, Jim Faulkner, James Faulkner at uh, Brigham Young University, um, uh, Rosalind Welch at the Maxwell Institute, uh, uh, 
uh, Joe Spencer uh, at Brigham Young University. All of these people are sort of taking a post-historical approach to the Book of Mormon, not worrying about the historicity, but but again, kind of thinking about the text as a theological text. Uh, so that's one avenue. The other avenue is thinking of the Book of Mormon as literature. And uh, again, for decades and upon decades, people have been saying, read this book as literature, not as history, and see what are the themes that it's, uh, that it's about, you know, re reading these as characters and so on. And, uh, you know, that's one, again, where there's been a lot of common ground between believers believing members of the church and non-believing members of the church, uh, non-believers non uh, who, uh, who who can kind of come come to see this text as uh, in, in that light. So Grant Hardy is a great example uh, of that. Um, Jared's, uh, 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 Jared Hickman is another example uh, of that. Uh, Liz Fenton is uh, another example of that. So there are a number of like scholars who are literature scholars who, who are kind of thinking about the Book of Mormon in, in, in in that respect, who are around today. And again, this is, you know, current current scholarship in the last 10, 10 years or so. Wow. How do we think about Joseph Smith, right? And this mm -hmm. goes back to our like fraud question, right? Like if it wasn't history, why didn't he just tell us, right? Or if he was receiving it as revelation, why didn't he just tell us, right? Um, and I, I think that I think that where we might come to approach Joseph Smith, not just in this instance, but mm -hmm. in a, a number of cases, to see him as really belonging to a totally different age and a totally different, you know, uh, I use a, I'll use a, a $10 word here, ontology here. <laughs> he, he sees the world and experiences the world in a very different way than we do in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And I would say that even your most kind of, you know, orthodox, uh, uh, you know, person – does not experience the world in the same way that that Joseph Smith did. And so I think that we kind of have to understand him as belonging to just, a, it seems like not that far away, but really a quite different time mm. and, um, and a different understanding of the world and the universe. You know, we talk about, uh, and scholars talk about his use of magic and magical objects and so on, and the use of seer stones. And, the, you know, these are not things that really work today. We try to say seer stones are like cell phones or something like that, you know, but Again, we're not using seer stones in the modern church. We don't really, <laughs> uh, we don't really use it. It's just a different way that he experienced things. And to understand him as a part of his own historical environment, he's not a part of ours. He doesn't play yeah. by the same rules of reality that that we do. And you know, so I think that we sometimes have to suspend our own understanding to be sympathetic to understanding how is he understanding it, right? Mm -hmm. And. I'm along with a, a number of other scholars. Don't think that he was actively trying to deceive people, that these, okay. he's genuinely experiencing these things as revelation. Now, you may agree or disagree with mm -hmm. his revelation. You may you may say he's delusional or something like that, but that doesn't take away that he's genuinely experiencing these uh, the, the, these things. Again, to say that he could translate the Book of Mormon in, in that amount of time, I, I think, you know, it, it's... It doesn't need to be supernatural. We don't have to sort of land land there, but it's a genuine experience that, yes. that he's having to, to do that, right? So, so I think uh, some sort of sympathy to Joseph Smith as sort of living in a different age, living in a different time, living in a different reality, and not necessarily judging him by 21st century rationality um, helps us make sense again, not just of Joseph Smith, but but of religious claims from different times and different eras. I'll give one just brief example of yeah. all of this, and it's a common one. Um, but there are many Christians today who believe that when the, the wafer is blessed by the priest, it becomes the body of Christ. Mm. Okay. And 
People do DNA tests to try to prove <laughs> that it's the body of Christ. And of course, the DNA tests don't show that it's the body of Christ. It shows it turns out just to be a wafer, right? Um, but many people experience it that way. Many people take it, take that to be uh, serious, right? And there are religious wars that have been fought on the question of is this symbolic or is it literal, right? Mm. Um, we, I think, as Latter-day Saints sort of straddle that world where, um, you know, many of the early Latter-day Saints and many Latter-day Saints today sort of live in that literal world, right? Um, and many of us live in that symbol. It's symbolic, right? Yeah. Um but I think that we have to understand that the people who live in that literal world and who experience it in, in a literal way and who see the Eucharist as actually the body of Christ, they're not deluded. They're not frauds. They're mm -hmm. not trying to, to lie to you or trick to you, tr trick you in some way. They're having a religious experience and experiencing a material object in a, in a different way than you are. Oh. Um, and so I, I think that that helps sometimes to kind of understand where where the sort of divide of how we think about reality and how we think about claims about reality can occur in, in ways that are actually quite mundane to us, but but I think apply to uh, how we might approach Joseph Smith in a different way as well. Wow. I Fascinating and so incredibly interesting what you have brought to this conversation, Taylor. I cannot thank you enough for how much I have just learned from your study, your scholarship, your thoughts. Um, thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor to get to talk to you about it. And thanks yeah. for having the patience to listen to my ramblings. Oh, and hopefully, no. it, hopefully it helps <laughs> you know, people. No patience necessary on my part whatsoever. I will, I will link the two um, episodes where he does the lit review of everything that's been published in the Dialogue Journal since the 1960s up till pretty close to present. For those of you who are interested in going deeper into any number of these various um, topics that we covered, and the beautiful thing is about what Taylor and I are talking about is that you as a thinking, feeling, inspired, inspiring individual have the ability to wrestle with this yourself and come up with your own conclusions as um, psychologically healthy and intelligent human beings. And children of divine parents, it is our responsibility that we get to do the wrestle. We don't have to trust what Taylor said. You don't have to trust what I said. You get to do this journey on your own. We are just offering you opportunities to think about a, what a lot of other people have thought about and written about and grappled with themselves to add to your ability to come up with your own, your own solutions, your own answers, your own, your own journey. So thank you for being here. And Taylor, why don't you close us up by giving us a little bit of um, a preview of the book that you just, well, that is getting published, or maybe by the time we run this, it'll have been published, but it's hot off the presses. So tell us all about that. The Bible and the Latter-day Saint Tradition by the University of Utah Press is co-edited by myself, Corey Crawford at Ohio University, and Eric Eliason at Brigham Young University. And we gathered the people that we consider to be the best scholars of the Bible and, and the reception of the Bible in the Latter-day Saint tradition to help us think through, in many respects, a lot of the issues that you and I have discussed today, um, how these complicated issues of historicity have impacted the way that Latter-day Saints have approached the Bible, how Latter-day Saints have read and then seen themselves in the Bible. We have a couple of excellent essays on the Book of Mormon in that volume by some of the great scholars that I mentioned earlier, and, uh, and uh, I think it'll make a real contribution to some of these conversations. I can't wait. If you haven't read, I, I know he, he's written several things, but 
as I have to mention, it's it's mandatory. He is the author of Tabernacles of Clay, and I am going to be having him on in the next few months where we're going to do a historical review of um, the varying um, and expanding um, understanding of sexuality and gender here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So stay tuned for that. I'm so excited for that. I I only didn't do that this time because I need to reread the book before we uh, before we jump on and so I can know what I'm talking about there to remember. So one last thing, Taylor, will you talk everyone, uh, tell everybody about what is the Dialogue organization, if anybody's new to that, and a little bit about the Dialogue Podcasting Network. Yeah. So Dialogue has been around since the 1960s as an independent academic journal. We also publish uh, short stories and poetry and uh, uh, personal essays, if those are the kinds of things that you're interested in. Uh, it's edited independently from the church and uh, I think is a trustworthy source that people can go to. And we've been publishing scholarship for almost 60 years that is uh, really foundational and critical to the way that uh, LDS uh, intellectual uh, thought has developed in, in that time period. So I'm really, really proud to have been the editor there for the last few years and uh, uh, to contribute to the great legacy of that journal. Um, and uh, we also then have a podcast, uh, uh, which we do a lot of the things in the journal, a few things that aren't in the journal, some extra stuff, if you want to check that out, as well as a podcasting network with a bunch of other independent shows like this great show here, uh, Beyond the Block, Face and Hat, a couple of other excellent shows. So if you like this one, you might also check out some of the other shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Thank you so much, Taylor. It has been such a pleasure to be with you and to be uh, able to share this information with all of you who are interested in going deeper into your own spiritual journey and making it your own. If this is something that uh, you want more of, if you're interested in faith expansion, you can join one of my uh, space limited groups. Uh, reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com and I will put you on a wait list. They are all currently full, but I am uh, doing my very best to um, open as many as I have availability for. I'm also creating some online courses that uh, can accommodate those of you who are not able for scheduling reasons to get into one of my groups. Uh, please rate and review this podcast and uh, come back and see us next time. Thanks all for being here and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today for this special episode. If you want to dig into the history of Book of Mormon scholarship further, check out the topics page at dialoguejournal.com. You'll find links to numerous articles in Dialogue through the years, and we even did a whole episode in the Dialogue Topics podcast about the Book of Mormon. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3. Music and editing for this episode was provided by Daniel Foster Smith, and our content manager is Emily Jensen. You can support Dialogue by subscribing to the journal or by becoming a sustaining member. For more information, go to dialoguejournal.com. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.